we have been in a sermon series that we have called, titled, Refocus, as we are attempting to refocus our attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the lifeblood of every Christian and the church. Um, And we say uh, around here that our first um, um, core value that we focus on the most is the, the belief that the gospel transforms lives. Amen? And so we need to periodically uh, come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have gone through um, a, a sermon series where we began in the first two pages of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we bounced from there to uh, Genesis chapter 3. And then last week we were in Hebrews chapter 9. And to this morning we're on the last couple of pages of the Bible as we see that all of God's word is communicating to us from beginning to end God's desire to redeem and rescue his people. And so we've been following this pattern that you see that's kind of shaped like a J. As we have seen that God's storyline, the plot line of all of Scripture moves from creation to fall to rescue and to restoration. And as we end here in Revelation chapter uh, 21 and 22 this morning, we're thinking about this concept of revelation. One of the themes that happens um, throughout this passage of Scripture is this theme and this picture of a bride who is prepared for her wedding day. And on my wedding day, I um, was one of the most ex- uh, exciting days of my life, July the 11th, 2009. And I, I can remember the anticipation of that day, and uh, it, it all culminated in that one moment when my beautiful bride walked down the aisle. And when she came down the aisle, she didn't come to the traditional um, marriage march. Instead, she came down to the, sound, or the, uh, the sounds of the Celtic women, if you're familiar with that group of ladies who sing, their version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And somewhere over the rainbow is, is such a beautiful picture of what, something that we said uh, as we have looked at this picture of the J-curve, the, the creation, the fall, the rescue, and the restoration. I tried drawing this last week, and you remember that it fumbled up a lot. So I, I've already drawn it, and I'm just going to work my way through it this week if you can see the screen. And that's where we started. The, the story of God in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 te- teaches us that God created things with a good design and a good purpose. And he declared it to be good. And where you and I live and where we see so many of our friends oftentimes is in this spirit of nostalgia that the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow seems to communicate. That there is a longing for a place, a longing for a place where everything is made right and everything is is good in the world. And that is in us because God designed us for that place. And that was God's good design and creation, but we saw that in our brokenness and in the sin that the world is not the way that things are. Instead, our world is not characterized by wholeness and purity and goodness of God's design. Instead, our world is characterized by brokenness, where there is struggle and there is strife and there is separation between man and woman and and adults and children and people of all ages and many demographics. But ultimately, there is a separation that exists between God and man. The first and most significant effect of sin in the world is that it separates Isaiah tells us that our sin has created a separation between us and God. And it's in that place of brokenness and that longing for what used to be that we attempt to create a pathway back. And so that's what the squiggly lines in this picture that you can see on the screen behind me look like. It's our efforts, our best efforts to fix our brokenness will inevitably lead us into deeper brokenness as we are incapable of fixing ourselves. 
But that's where so many of us live. We try to fix ourselves, or we try to fix those that we love, or we try to fix the world around us in our own brokenness and in our own power and strength and might. And so what we saw last week is what we need is we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued first and foremost from our sin, but also from our sinful attempts to rely upon ourselves and to rescue ourselves out. And what we saw in Hebrews chapter 9 is that Jesus Christ comes as not only the source of our redemption, but the source of our rest. And that the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that your salvation and my salvation is not dependent upon our efforts, either to be saved or to stay saved, but is fully and totally bought and paid for and completed in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who is the source of our redemption, who is the source of our rest. But the good news and the testimony of Scripture is that when God rescues us from our brokenness, God doesn't merely bring us back to the point of creation. Instead, he does something better. And so that you can see that this J-curve is not just the testimony of Scripture, it's the testimony of all of the Scriptures. It's the story of Jesus Christ, just really briefly, in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul talks about what Jesus did, that Jesus, though he was equal with God, chose not to hold on to that, but instead emptied himself in the incarnation and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and was then resurrected in the power of the Holy Spirit, brought back to life, and not merely just walking around in the earth, but was instead, Paul says, exalted now. That's something that just blows my mind, that this one who was equal to God is now somehow, because of the work that he has done, more exalted than he was at the beginning when he was merely equal with God. And so we find in the end that he is now given the name above every name, and he is the one that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so we see in the story of Jesus Christ this descent towards death and this turnaround in, in, the, re, in the resurrection and this exaltation, and so it is also true of the overall story of the Bible, that God just does not take us back to creation, but to, to quote Nancy Guthrie in her book, he takes us to something even better than Eden. He doesn't just take the old things. And so when we talk about this notion of restoration, we're not talking, Nancy Guthrie prefers the word consummation as do many other theologians. And I shared with you last week, the word consummation means the fulfillment. And so you can use either word, but we'll see there's a restoration of some things. And so we see that most clearly in Revelation 21 and into 22. So if you have your Bibles, look with me and let's read that, and we will look into this new creation that God is working. The Apostle John, in this revelation, declares these words. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage. 
I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spake to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gate made a single pearl, made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no, lamp of sun, of, uh, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy, and I thank you for the truth and the power of your word. And I pray that this morning you would guard us in your presence and that you would guard us by your grace and your mercy that we might um, be motivated to pursue you in your grace and in your holiness that we might find in you the ultimate promise of all things. That, Heavenly Father, we would turn from ourselves and from our sin and instead find in you the greatest grace and hope that we could ever imagine. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. As we think here about the restoration of all things and the restoration of God's good design and intention, the promise of these verses is this. The promise of these verses is that God will 
without a shadow of a doubt, regardless of the whole book of Revelation is meant to encourage believers who are facing the most horrible um, events in human history and is instead meant to infuse them with a hope, with a confidence that God will accomplish all of his purposes. And so the promise of these verses as we come not only to the end of Revelation but to the end of the Bible altogether is that God will complete his plan of redemption for the good of all creation removing sin and restoring his good design by the return of his glory. So we must be those who thirst for his life and live for his glory and hunger for his presence. The promise out of these verses is that God is going to accomplish his plans for the good of all creation by removing sin and restoring his good design, and he does that through the return of his glory. What John sees in these verses, beginning in verse 1, is he sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, he says, have passed away. The new here is not regarding time. Instead, the Greek word that is here used as, as new refers to quality. It's something that has been renewed. It's kind of like um, when... When the, as Paul says, that all of creation is groaning as in birth pains, waiting for the, the revelation of the sons of God. What you see in, in birth is that throughout all of the pain, what you get is you get a new baby who has come into this world, but you get this, this new person altogether. And so when we see here at the end, what Paul is talking about is he sees a renewed creation. And what makes it renewed is the fact that there are certain things that are true of the first heaven and the first earth, our present existence, that's not going to be true of that new heaven and new earth. And also, there is something that is part of our existence now, some things that are part of our existence now, that is not going to be true of that eternal existence. And first, what we see that is not going to be in heaven, the former things that have passed away are all anchored to sin. And so throughout this passage of Scripture, what John makes clear is that in the new heavens and the new earth, what is gone is sin and everything that is tied to it. The promise of this passage of Scripture is that one day when God accomplishes all of his purposes, the stain of sin is going to be removed. John says, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Right? We see that in verse 2. So the question becomes, because that's a little puzzling, right? I saw the city of God coming down as a bride adorned. And there's a couple other places in this passage of Scripture where he's told, come and I will show you the bride of Christ, and he sees a city. So what is it that John sees? Does John see a people, or does John see a place? The answer is yes. He sees a people who have been prepared by the grace of God to be a place for God. What is Jerusalem throughout Scripture? Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God's glory on earth. It's the place where people go to meet God. And in the New Testament, what becomes the dwelling place of God on earth? The hearts of the redeemed. The people of God become the dwelling place of his presence on earth. The church, Peter says, is a temple made of living stones being built by the Holy Spirit. Who is the bride? The bride throughout the New Testament is the people of God. 
who experience an intimate relationship with God. So John sees both a people and a place. He sees the church of God coming from God, prepared by God as the perfected bride and dwelling place for him here on earth for all of eternity. She is a bride. She is a city adorned for her husband. Now, when any bride gets ready for her wedding day and for her wedding ceremony, what is one of the most natural first steps that she does in preparing herself? Hopefully, the first step is the same first step that I have every day when I get up. I wash off the grime of yesterday and the sweat of the night and prepare myself for the day. And so the first step of a bride as she prepares herself for a wedding and for her wedding ceremony is to prepare herself by cleansing herself. But her preparation is even bigger than the simple cleanliness. It's about removing anything that would be a picture to the best of her ability of her imperfections, to present herself in their best manner. On the day that Sarah and I were married, at our wedding ceremony, Sarah had a broken elbow. Because almost a month to the day before our wedding, she was rear-ended sitting still in traffic, totaled her car, and cracked her elbow bone. And she was in a hot pink cast till almost the day of our wedding when she walked in to her doctor and said, I don't care what we have to do. This is not coming to me to, with me to my wedding, and it's definitely not coming with me to Hawaii. She said, do what you've got to do, but get rid of this thing. And so the doctor said, the best that we can do is we can create a splint so that you can continue to support your arm. And during the ceremony, you can take it off and you can come down, but you've got to just keep that as still as you possibly can. And so as Sarah came down the aisle, if you hadn't known what had happened in the month before, you never would have known that her arm was broken. And she went through that ceremony because she was not going to have it documented in her pictures forever and forever that she had a broken arm because she was doing what was necessary and in her power to remove even any semblance of an imperfection on that day and what we find here is that when God brings his people when the people of God return they return in the glory of God and we see them perfectly cleansed of any evidence of unrighteousness Every stain of sin is removed in the people of God and for the people of God. We see throughout this passage of Scripture that there are things that you and I are familiar with in our present existence that won't exist in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 1 says there will be no sea. Verse 25 of chapter 21, and then verse, five, or wait, verse 25 of chapter 21, and verse 5 of chapter 22 tell us that there will be no night. And the reason for that is that throughout Scripture, the sea and darkness are signs of chaos and judgment. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the, the author writes, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We see darkness and we see the sea as these signs of chaos that God is going to bring order out of in his creation. And throughout the book of Revelation, the sea is the birthplace of evil and rebellion against God. In the Gospel of John, John tells us that men have loved the darkness more than we love the light because our works are evil. So in both of those places, we see that the sea and darkness is a source of evil in the world, but it's also a sign of judgment. Night and darkness is a place of separation from God, a place of judgment. Jesus says that all of those who do not come to him in faith are going to be cast into the what? 
outer darkness. As Jesus is hanging on the cross in Mark 15, 33, and he is enduring your judgment and my judgment for sin, what comes down? Darkness. According to the Old Testament, where does God cast our sin? Into the depths of the sea. The sea and darkness are sources of chaos, and they are signs of judgment. And when the perfect comes, there will be no more need of that. There will be no more source of evil, no source of the imperfect. And it being removed, all of the effects of the imperfect will also be removed. That's why John is able to declare in these verses, particularly in verse 4, there will be no tears, there will be no death, therefore there's no mourning, no crying, no pain of any kind. The source of all of this ache and pain and heartbreak and brokenness in the world is sin. But since sin will be no more, there will be no source of death. And since there is no death, there's no reason for pain, no reason for suffering, no reason for disease, no reason for strife. All of that will be washed away and it will be purged from creation. And it's purged from creation by God's judgment. As he comes in his holiness, God finally deals with sin. And we see his dealing with sin in Revelation chapter 20, before these verses, at the great white throne judgment of God. And, he, and, and we see that effect, those effects of that judgment coming into chapter 21 that we've read, such that we're able to read in verse 8 that all of the cowardly, the faithless, the detestables, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all of those liars will be cast from the presence of God once and for all. We also see in chapter 21, verse 7, that there's going to be nothing left that's unclean. Nothing that is, un, that is detestable, nothing that is cursed will exist in the world anymore. None of that will be allowed in the perfected creation of God. And since there's nothing cursed in the world, that's part of the reason why chapter 21, verse 22, we see that there's no temple. The temple is the place where people came to flee the presence of sin and to find the presence of God to get away from all of the evil and the accursed things of the world and to find refuge and solace in the presence of God at the temple. But since there is no more accursed thing, there is no need for the temple. Instead, God is everywhere. And we see the fulfillment of Habakkuk 2.14, such that in the new creation, the glory of the Lord is finally free to cover the entire earth just as the waters cover the seas. All of this is possible because the root that is sin has been plucked from the world. When you and I look into our lives and we ask ourselves, what's wrong? What's wrong with my marriage? What's wrong with my, my work? What's wrong with our world? What's wrong with the church? What's wrong in my life? I would challenge you to ask the question as you make the list of everything that is messed up or broken in your life, in your home, in our church, ask the follow-up question, is that a fruit of something or is that really the root? Because the truth of the matter is, any gardener knows that I can pluck heads off of dandelions all day long and do no good forever. If you don't take a weed and pluck it up by its root, it will continue to grow back. And so as you and I are investigating our lives and we're positioning ourselves before the Lord in humility, we must move beyond just the symptoms of our problem and find what is the source. What is the sin that's behind it? And we will find inevitably that in our lives, what is the root of all of our problems is love. There are only two great commands that Jesus says sum up all of the Old and the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
To fail to love God first is to commit idolatry. To fail to love your neighbor is to commit injustice. Go and read the prophets of the Old Testament. What are they constantly challenging and condemning the people of Israel for? Idolatry and injustice. It's the major theme throughout Scripture. So I know it hurts when I or someone come into our lives and into our church gathering and fellowship and say that our problem is that we don't love Jesus enough. But the truth of the matter is, that's the point of all of Scripture. To violate any of the, other, of the last nine commandments is to break the first one, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. To choose sin is to choose something other than loving God first. And so it's not earth-shattering or mind-blowing that when we come and we begin assessing problems in our church or in our society or in our lives, that the core problem is that we don't love God enough. Ask yourself the question, whatever the problem is that you see in your life, in your marriage, in your personal devotional life, or in our church, ask this question, would that be a problem if I loved Jesus the way I was supposed to? See, that's the root of it all, brothers and sisters. So when I write to you and when I tell you that the problem facing not only our church, but the church of Jesus Christ around the world and, and throughout America right now is a love problem, an idolatry problem, that we have loved things that are good things but are still nevertheless less than God, that's where it's coming from. God's Word. It's a love problem. It's a worship problem. It's an adoration problem. If I loved Jesus enough, would this really be a problem in my life? And so the answer is to come back to this, this picture of God's restoration and the work that he does in our lives. And so we've seen that the part of existence that's not going to be a part of the new creation is our sin, rooted all the way down into our failure to love God the way that we are supposed to love him first and foremost. But what about the things that are, will be true of that new eternal existence that aren't true of our present life? As we look in this chapter, these chapters, what we see is that the stain of sin is removed, but we also see that the goodness of God's design is restored. Not only is it re realized, not only is it, is it brought back, it is brought to something infinitely greater than we could have ever possibly dreamed or imagined. When a bride prepares herself for a wedding, she doesn't stop at merely taking a bath. Instead, she has spent potentially thousands of dollars to prepare her hair and to buy the right dress and to, to get the right makeup and to, to get all of the things that she needs so that she might not just be washed and purified, but that she might present herself as beautiful for her husband. And that's what we see right here in this passage of Scripture, is that the church of Jesus Christ is prepared by God for God. When, G when Sarah was preparing herself for our wedding ceremony, she did so not just with her own desires and designs of beauty in mind, she did so with me in mind, making very specific decisions in her appearance to please me. When she talked with her hairdresser, she wanted her hair up, but she knew that I don't really like short hair, I like long hair, and so she made a compromise that she would wear a half up and half down do so that she could please me. And what we see in these verses is that the church of Jesus Christ descends and comes glorified. We don't just see that everything that is wrong is made right, we also see the church made beautiful and glorious. What is meaningful and what is significant is made permanent. 
And all of this is done, we see in these verses, by God and for God. The city comes from God in verse 2 and is prepared presumably by God. Verse 5, God himself declares, behold, I am making all things new. In 21 verse 11, we see the city, the bride, come adorned not with her beauty, but what does she come adorned with? Verse 11, the glory of God himself. We see here the, the creation design of humanity that we would be created in the image of God to be a reflection of him and his glory finally fulfilled as the church of Jesus Christ for all of eternity now reflects the glory of God, is clothed in and adorned with his beauty, not a glory that comes from herself, but a glory that is given to her by God. She is and has, we see in these verses, the radiance of jasper. That's significant because back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, John sees God sitting on the throne. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 4, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a ra rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The people of God are now built with, created by the, the essence of the very thing that is the essence of God as he sits on the throne. As we are given something, a beauty that belongs to God and flows from his presence. The city of God and the people of God here are finally perfective. And John struggles to the best of his ability to put the limits of human language to the test to describe what it is that he sees. He can't describe it. He works with human constructs to the best of his ability as he gives this image of a perfected city, a walled city that is guarded and kept, that is perfect in all of its ways, that is beautiful. And on this walled city, we find the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're posted above the gates on the top. And on the bottom, we have the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in the book of, the, of Ephesians that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And this is completed now in this perfected picture of humanity's eternity. All the people of God, whether from the old covenant or from the new covenant, are now here in this eternal dwelling place. We also see in verses 16 through 17 as this angel comes and begins to measure this city that is coming down adorned as a bride, we find that this city is in the shape of a perfect cube. Which should bring our minds back. Why is that significant? In Hebrews chapter 9, last week we talked about the, the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle there were two locations. The most important location was the holy of holies. The most holy place. The place where God's glory was said to dwell. The place where no man was allowed to go, but only the high priest once a year. That place was designed by God in Exodus to be a perfect cube. It was built as a perfect cube in the tabernacle. It was rebuilt again as a perfect cube by Solomon in the temple. And when Solomon built it, he overlaid all of the walls and everything that were in it with pure gold. And so we see here this picture as John describes this city that comes. This city is a perfected, holy of holies, most holy place. All of the city, everyone gets to dwell with God in the place designed by God, for God, and for his glory. We're brought right into his presence. 
And just like the Old Testament priests ministered to and walked upon gold when they came into the holy place, so we will spend eternity walking on streets of gold. But beyond that, the people don't just, John doesn't just see a city coming down, he sees a world restored. In chapter 22, he, expo- he shares with us that he sees a, the creation of God restored by the presence of God and his glory. And he sees it in this image of a garden. The Bible starts in a garden, the Bible ends in an even greater garden. The Garden of Eden, we find, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, that in the Garden of Eden, there was a river that was burst out of Eden, and it went from Eden to flow and to water all of the land that's around it. In the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of life that humanity has been cut off from because of our sin. But now in this even greater garden, we find that there's a better river, a river of life that flows eternally from the throne of God and waters a better tree, which is an eternal tree of life, that almost has this picture. This tree is somehow on both sides of the river. So either it is a great big massive tree like a redwood with one of those those holes carved out of it for, for cars to drive through, or instead of there being a single tree, it's instead a forest. A forest that is made up of one tree, one kind of tree, a tree of life that continues to perpetually bear fruit. It's a tree that never, is never unfruitful, It's a tree that's never boring. Instead, it bears 12 different kinds of fruit every month of the year for all of eternity, and even its leaves are for the healing of the nations. We see in the end the fulfillment of all of God's promises as a perfect people and a perfect place and a perfect purpose. Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham, the first covenant that he entered into with Abraham was that I will give you a seed, an offspring, a people, and I will give you a land, and your people will be a source of blessing for all of the world. We see it fulfilled in this passage of Scripture where we have seen a perfected people. We see a perfect place for them to dwell in for all of eternity, but we end with this with a perfect purpose forever and forever, namely that the people of God will reign in the power of God forever. Our purpose from the very beginning was to live in a relationship with God, perfectly reflecting him to the world and extending his reign over the earth as steward kings and queens of creation. And that's exactly what we see happen in verse 5 of chapter 22. They will reign forever and forever. Our lives as the children of God must not be merely defined by putting off sin seeing the stain of sin removed from our lives. But instead, what we must also see, what we must also pursue, is a putting on of righteousness as well. That is the preparation of ourselves to rule and reign with God for all of eternity. Not just that we put off our sin, but we put on our righteousness. As God is working in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit through the process of sanctification to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ that we might then perfectly reflect him and that we might reign with him for all of eternity in glory. We're invited in this process to develop a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. We're invited in these verses right here in verse 6 of chapter 22, to the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life. God invites us to thirst for his life, to hunger for his righteousness, to long for his presence. And we do this as we continue to position ourselves by putting off of our sin and growing in our desire for God, a desire to be with Him, to commune with Him, 
So how is it that you are growing up in your salvation? How is it that you are actively preparing for your eternity with God? How are you longing for Him? Are you putting sin away in your life? Are you growing ever sensitive to sin's presence in your life so that you can turn from it and instead run to Jesus Christ? How are you growing in your dependence upon and your passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you feasting on your identity in Jesus each and every single day, falling more and more in love with Him so that you might lead others to that same love? Are you growing in your affection for God in His Word? Are you growing for your, in your longing to be in His presence in prayer? Again, prayerlessness and not reading the Bible and pursuing sin, that's all fruit of a bigger problem. Your affection for the Lord. That's, God says, Paul tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the grace of God that moves us into devotion, not his, mur- or not, not his, his punishment and his judgment. But we see ultimately that what makes this eternal home and heaven actually heaven is not merely the fact that sin doesn't exist anymore and everything is perfected and everything is made righteous and pure and and is beautiful with all of these materialistic things. Instead, what makes heaven heaven is that God is there. The final piece of the puzzle here that flows throughout it is that the glory of God's presence is finally restored. It's not just that sin is removed. It's not just that God's good design is realized. Instead, it is that God is present. What makes heaven heaven is God's presence. A bride doesn't prepare herself just so that she can have a really big party and be beautiful at it. A bride prepares herself for a oneness with another human being that is no longer separated, no longer pulled apart, but instead are able to come together in a perfect intimacy and union. That's the purpose of it. And so what we find here is that God purges everything that is wrong. He repairs everything that is is broken, and he restores it to righteousness so that he might dwell with his people. That is what we see throughout this passage of Scripture. This new heaven and new earth, according to verse 3 of 21, is that it is a dwelling place for God. God now dwells with a perfect humanity. Where does he do this? Not some ethereal spiritual realm, but on a restored earth. Because if you remember, God created us out of this earth as flesh and bones. There is no place where a person exists prior to the formation of their body. Regardless of what our, our, the, the Mormon church teaches, that there are a heaven full of spirit babies just waiting for a body, our spirit comes to, into existence at the moment that our body is first created in that infinitesimally small spot at conception. Our spirit, our soul, and everything is tied to our body. And so what you and I understand to be heaven right now, this spiritual location where my soul goes to be with Jesus, is merely a holding place, brothers and sisters. That's not our hope. That's a temporary place until God restores all of those spirits to their body and dwells with them here on earth forever. That's the hope of the believer. That's the continuation of, and the, the, the consummation of the gospel story is that we will live here restored and perfected. This is all done by God, again, for God. He is the beginning and the end, the author and perfecter of all things. Chapter 21, verse 6. 
He's the source of all that's beautiful, all that is eternal. He is the one who gives permission to drink freely from this water of life. Verse 6, it's the glory of God, again, that clothes this, this new creation, this new city. They are reflecting the glory of God. There's no need for a temple, not only because there's no sin, but because God is everywhere. And he has driven away the darkness, and he has cast out the sea, so there's no need of light at all. He is its perfect lamp that drives the darkness away. But the greatest promise of all comes near, merely not from the fact that God dwells on earth or that he really dwells even among his people. The promise of this passage, the hope of Christianity, the crowning jewel of all of creation and all of Scripture is that in eternity, God will dwell with his people in an intimate relationship that we cannot experience now. As the promises here in verse 7 and verse 24 are first and foremost that God will be to us a perfect father who embraces us as his sons. Now, ladies, don't get offended by that. As if you remember, we talked about this several, I think a couple months ago, that in Scripture and in this generation or in this, this time and in this, this age, daughters got nothing. They could not inherit so when the Bible refers to you as a son, you are an heir with Jesus Christ. What, Jesus, what John is doing here, what Paul is doing here, is he is giving you the position. He doesn't just see men in heaven. He sees men and women who all have the status of sons of God, which means they are all co-heirs and inheritors with Jesus Christ of everything that is Jesus's. We are all, each and every one, to be sons of God, and we will all see his face. We will see his face and we will be stamped as his possession as he stamps us with that seal of himself and his name. So as I finish up, I just want to finish this with a question. When you think of heaven, what excites you? Stop and, and think, and all of your life, as I think and I dwell on heaven, what is it that excites me the most about heaven? Is it the fact that I finally get to see that long-lost relative? Is it the fact that I don't have to, won't have to experience pain ever again? There will be no disease. I'll be able to walk straight again. I'll be able to stand straight again. I won't have arthritis eating me apart. I won't have cancer. I won't have any of these things. Is it that you will have an eternal and unimaginable inheritance such that gold is so worthless it is paving equipment, material? Do I get to be at a place where I'm going to walk on streets of gold and there are diamonds everywhere and I just get to live in this eternity of beauty? Is it that you will have power and you get to reign with God? You get to trample over evil and you get to just, ex just exercise the authority of God for all of eternity? Is it maybe that all of the evil people will finally be judged? Finally! Those wicked people are going to be gone. All of those are true. All of those are good. All of those are incomplete and fall far short of the glory of God. What makes heaven heaven is not all of those good things. What makes heaven heaven is the greatest thing, which is God.
So you and I must strive to hunger for his presence, to thirst for his life, to live for his glory. Do you wake up every morning hungry to spend time with God? Do you thirst for the presence of God? Do you expect God to meet you in a special way when you gather with other believers? Are you longing to be with him even now? If not, heaven's going to be boring for you if you even get there. Because I will warn you that in verse 8, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, all of those people that are going to be cast out of God's presence, they're set in contrast to the ones who overcome. The promises of Scripture are to the ones who overcome, who hold firm and fast to the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do I feel the need to come back again and again and again and again to the gospel? Why do I say we must be a gospel-saturated people? Why must, we, why must I say that we must be a gospel-saturated church? Because it's the gospel that is above everything else. It is the gospel that is the source of our identity. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are commanded to hold firm to. We are to hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The ones who overcome are the ones who hold fast to their identity in Jesus no matter what happens in the world around them. They tie their identity to no immortal or no, I mean, immaterial and mortal kingdom or purpose or place, or people. But first and foremost, they hold fast to their identity in Jesus Christ. Are you someone who knows who you are in Christ every moment of every day? I know I'm not. Which is why I have to come again and again in confession and repentance begging God not only for forgiveness, but to give me what I don't have inside of myself, which is a desire for it. Brothers and sisters, if you're not praying, if you're not reading God's word, if you're not living a life that brings God glory, it's because there's something wrong deep down inside of you, and God, you need to pray that God would revive your soul by awakening in you a desire for him. And that desire for him is going to drive you into all of those other things. We don't pray and read our Bible because we want God to be happy with us. Because we are happy in Jesus, we spend time with him in his word. So I invite you right here, right now, if you aren't someone living that gospel-saturated life, then the prayer that you need to pray, the prayer that I need to pray is simply this. God, would you awaken in me a hunger for you, a thirst for your life, desire for your righteousness. Change me. Change my heart. Would you go before the Lord and would you bow your heads and close your eyes and would you spend time before him in prayer? Pray that prayer. God, would you transform my heart's desire that I might have a hunger for righteousness, a thirst for your life, and a desire for your presence. And I'll close this in prayer in a moment.